If you crave technology that leads, if you appreciate design that inspires, if you want driving dynamics that excite, meet the one. The remarkable BMW 1 Series, featuring front and rear parking sensors, cruise control, fully digital display with navigation and real-time traffic information, along with BMW's latest voice control intelligent personal assistant, all a standard. Meet the one with your own exclusive video consultation. Book yours today at bmw.ie. The Masters on Sky Sports, now half price for six months. Witness all four unmissable days live from Augusta. It's one of the grand theatres of the sporting world. Oh, what a shot! You couldn't script this for a Hollywood movie. The best place to watch all four days of the Masters live. To join or upgrade and get Sky Sports half price for six months, search Sky Sports Golf. New sports customers only. Standard pricing applies after six months. Further terms apply. Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. I'm Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post's political editor, and this week I've been left in charge of the podcast while Jerry Scott takes a well-earned week off from her Westminster correspondent duties. Never fear though, she'll be back next week. We've got a great guest for this week's episode in the shape of Lord Victor Adebowale, the chairman of the NHS Confederation, which represents the leaders of the health trusts who have been going above and beyond in the last year in the face of the worst public health crisis to grip the country in a century. I think it's fair to say that the pressure on the NHS is now finally easing after a brutal few months, but the breathing space the NHS now has offers an opportunity to reflect, I think, on what comes next for our health services and how we tackle some of those long-standing health inequalities that have plagued the country and our region for decades. But before we get on to that, I thought we could talk a bit to Greg Wright, the Yorkshire Post's deputy business editor, who you'll remember appeared on the podcast a few weeks ago, talking about his campaigning efforts on the loan charge and the terrible impact this has had on many people's lives. Now, Greg is actually working hard on another special report, which will appear in this weekend's edition of the Yorkshire Post on another hugely important subject, which is the millions of people, and it is millions around the country, who've been excluded from government support during the pandemic. So let's bring in Greg now from sunny Ilkley. Uh, Greg, welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to be back here, Robin. It's quite a sunny day up in Ilkley. I think uh, spring has finally arrived in Ilkley, so that's good news for all of us. Good. I'm very glad to hear it. It's nice and sunny here in Leeds as well. So why don't you just tell us a bit about The Excluded? I imagine people might have heard of it, and I know you know Andy Burnham and other um, Northern leaders have been talking about it, but I- I- explain uh, the scandal uh, so far and, and, and sort of the background to it, if you can. Yes, I mean, as we all know, over the last year, uh, the UK economy has faced massive challenges due to the pandemic, and it's not been business as usual for millions of people. Uh, Due to lockdown, many businesses simply not been able to function. Now, in response to these massive changes in the economy and the fact that during lockdown, people cannot trade, cannot function as they would normally do, the government actually implemented a number of schemes to try and support the economy and stop people falling into poverty and also not being able to support their staff. Now, that has been welcomed by many people and many business groups have welcomed the the vast interventions that have been made by the government to support businesses and also to support uh, employees in these difficult times. However, the fact remains that there are a group of people who simply missed out. Now, 
these people have missed out often due to reasons which to people looking on the outside seem quite arbitrary. These are hardworking, honest people, taxpayers who have been excluded from support which other people have benefited from. Now, according to Excluded UK, who are the campaigning group, they say three million people fall into this category and they cover a wide variety of, of areas. I mean, it's an incredibly wide range of people. And this is because they don't fit into the support packages. Now, over the last year, we've seen support measures such as the job retention scheme and the self-employment income support scheme, along with benefits such as universal credit, which have been introduced by the government to help workers whose livelihoods have been impacted by the pandemic. However, this support doesn't cover some people. These include the newly employed, the newly self-employed, freelancers, directors of limited companies paid in dividends, and the self-employed with annual profits of more than £50,000. Now, there are some quite heartbreaking stories about this with people who have simply missed out on support altogether and simply cannot function. And as part of my investigation into this, I've spoken to quite a number of business people who are based in Yorkshire who have faced significant financial strain on the back of this. They include Rachel Flower from Hooby near Harrogate, who's one of the, the national founders of uh, the UK. And she actually told me that people have now got zero in their bank accounts and no food on the table. I've also spoken to Gina Miller, who is a well-known campaigner on behalf of people who want to reform the financial services system. And she's also told me various stories about the, the impact on, on people's well-being. And says people are, are find it hard to pay for food and heating. What uh, Excluded UK are basically calling for is for parity. If you're basically one of these groups who've missed out on uh, support, they believe that a grant or extension to existing COVID-19 schemes by the government could include those who have been denied support through no fault of their own. Now, when you speak to the government, what they do say is that in this difficult time, this crisis, um, they've done all they can to support jobs and libraries for the £350 billion package of support and the self-employed and the furlough schemes, which the government says are among the most generous in the whole world. Um, I mean, they do acknowledge that it's not been possible to support everyone in the way they might want, but they say that funding is designed to target those who need it most and protect the taxpayer against fraud and abuse. Um, it must be said there's a lot of support for people who have been excluded, though, and a lot of people from across the political divide who've got sort of backbench MPs across the party divide saying that more needs to be done to, to deal with these gaps in support. I've also spoken to members of the Federation of Small Business who still say that people are falling between the gaps. And what's happening in practical terms, these people basically have no savings. They're building up massive debts. So these business people who, before the pandemic, were successful and maybe just started on a successful enterprise, They've obeyed the law, they've stayed at home, they've protected the NHS, they've done the right thing. And as a result of all that, they're now facing significant financial problems. The problem also, from a practical perspective, is these people find it very hard to get back on their feet when the economy starts to recover. So you can have these up to three million people who are going to face significant long-term hardship and will continue to struggle uh, in the future as well. So it's a, it's a massive dilemma for the government. When you speak to the government, there's no sign whatsoever of any movement in terms of supporting Excluded UK. Um, you've still got the um, MPs battling hard to say that there are schemes that can be brought in that could support people. And it's very easy, they say, to avoid fraud if you have strong checks in place, which should be uh, supportable. But I think the big issue here is a societal one. I mean, can we as a society allow such a large number of people simply to be left behind? 
when all they've been guilty of, quite frankly, is falling between the gaps in support which have been set by government. And at the same time as they're doing this, they are doing all that they can to support their fellow citizens by not working, by staying at home, and by honouring all the um, sort of limits and sort of restrictions on personal behaviour which have been set um, during the pandemic. So it's a massive dilemma for government, but also a massive dilemma for society as a whole. And I think that many people, when we come out of this, will perhaps question why, in some areas, more support, more targeted support was not given to people who really did believe that despite all the issues the economy is facing and the pressures on the public purse, they did believe uh, that they deserved more support from their own government. Yeah, absolutely. Are, um, are campaigners, excluded UK, are they optimistic that there might be any positive resolution to this or is it pretty much done and dusted? There's a sort of fait accompli, as, as it were. There's absolutely no sign whatsoever in the most recent statement of the government anything's changing. Uh, and I think it does look like the Chancellor's digging his heels in. I mean, what they're saying is, you know, we can't support everyone, but we need to protect people from fraud. You know, we supported a £350 billion package of support, which is a lot of money by any reckoning. Um, it's a difficult one. Um, I know Labour, Ed Miliband, who's the Shadow Business Secretary, said that, you know, he says basically it's wrong economically to see entrepreneurship dashed in this way. He's issued a statement saying it's wrong. And we do have um, MPs and campaigners, Gina Miller, there's John Cordwell, who's a respected entrepreneur, who's, who's campaigning on behalf of the excluded. But to be completely honest with you, there's no sign whatsoever that the government is changing its position. And these people are continuing to, continuing to suffer hardship. And some of the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, there have been stories of people having to sell possessions, sell their homes, basically having to, to go without and their children going without. So this is a situation where we won't in all probability, come out of this pandemic as quickly as many people hope. And it's a long-term societal problem. So the question is, can we allow a situation where all these people are left behind? And on the, on the back of that, we have long-term issues around their financial well-being. But there's no indication at this stage that the government is going to, to change its position in any shape. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, just the, the sheer number of people uh, in, who are affected by this is quite striking, isn't it? But as you say, each each of those numbers is a, a person, a family whose livelihood is threatened and, and, and you know, the emotional hardship that, that comes with that. Um, Greg, thank you very much for that. That is um, fascinating stuff. And I'll, I'll be reading this weekend's edition with, with interest to find out, uh, to, to hear the full report. So yes, as I say, it will be in, uh, there'll be a full special report by Greg in th this week's edition. So do pick up a copy if you can. Um, we're going to move on now to this week's guest. So let's have a little bit, let's hear a little bit about what they have to say. So I'm pleased to be chatting with today's guest, who is Lord Victor Adebowale, the chair of the NHS Confederation. Brought up and educated in Wakefield, he's had a fascinating career which saw him become a leading figure in the housing association movement. For two decades, he was the chief executive of Turning Point, the social enterprise organisation that provides health and care services across England. He was made a CBE in 2000 for services to the Labour government's New Deal and to unemployed and young homeless people, and he was appointed as one of the first people's peers in 2001, becoming a crossbench member of the Lords. His role at the NHS Confederation 
which represents the organisations that plan, commission and provide NHS services, started last year just as the country was heading into lockdown. So it's been no small task giving those organisations a voice in recent months. So, Victor, it's great to have you on today. How are you? Hi, I'm all right. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. Likewise, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on. So, um, I've got loads to ask you about because you've got had a fascinating career, and the work you're doing at the moment is so interesting. But I thought we'd just, uh, well, no, we do absolutely. I, I thought we'd just go back to your roots in Yorkshire just briefly because, um, obviously, you're the the son of Nigerian parents, and you grew up in Wakefield. Um, that was, you know, what what set you on the path to the career you you now have. Was it, was that a period you look you look back fondly on? Did that sort of shape the person that you you, you later became? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm very proud of being a Yorkshireman. I like I love Yorkshire, and I like Yorkshire people, and they are different. And um, I, I've, I learned a lot um, from my past. It wasn't all. Um, strawberries and cream. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. In fact, we had no money at all. And um, my mum brought up, you know, four kids on pretty much a nurse's salary, um, which is no mean feat. And but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as they say. And I've been blessed with both. Uh, well, uh, resilience and luck. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, well, you've got to have a bit of both, haven't you, to uh, succeed in this uh, mm-hmm. in, in this world. Self-doubt so, and so, ambition. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, you, I mean, obviously, you've, 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 without going into a huge amount of detail about all, all your career, you've done a huge number of, of interesting things. What what what, does, what made you decide to um, take on your current role as uh, chair of the NHS Confederation, and, and also for our well, listeners who perhaps don't understand sort of fully what 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 the organisation does, can you just sort of explain yeah. ex- explain how it works and what what, yeah. what attracted you to it? Yeah. So basically, the NHS Confederation is the organisation that represents all the all players in the health and social care system. So we represent your local hospital, your local GP, um, your your local mental health trust. Um, your local community trust, um, your local voluntary sector organisation. Basically, all those people providing health and social care have leaders uh, running those organisations, and we represent them. And it's just a really exciting opportunity to help shape the future of health and social care. And so I couldn't say no. And, you know, I've been a I've been a chief exec of something for, what, 20-odd years? Well, longer than that, actually, more, more like 35 years. Um, and it just felt right to take a break from being the chief exec for a while and perhaps be the chair, you know, and support the chief exec. And um, and that's what I decided to do. And I was lucky enough to apply for the job and, and get it. And, I, and I'm enjoying it immensely, actually. I, I really enjoy the work. It's challenging because there's a lot to do in health and social care, as you have you no doubt <laughs> figured. And I joined at a particularly challenging time just as the, as the pandemic was starting to bite. So... Um, We've had a challenge to both manage the present crisis, which I think the, my members have done incredibly well. I mean, we, we've our health and social care members have pulled this country through one of the biggest crises since the Second World War, but to focus on the future as well, because um, it's the future that will create the, um, the, the that will create um, health and wealth for all of us, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it must have been a very 
different experience to what you were initially expecting because you joined in April didn't you just as sort of uh you know lockdown was starting to bite and the pressures on the NHS were really starting to 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 ramp up yeah yes it was it was um I mean to me you know if you think about it you know I've I have worked I have worked for um lots of organizations um in the in the public sector and if you do work for those organizations both in the public and not for dividend sector you know you have to deal with crises because they happen and um so i had thought about the consequences of what i was of the pandemic on my members um on our members and i and i kind of felt ready to take on the challenge um and you know it beholds me to be no less uh, impactful than our members so you know we we had to pull ourselves together, operate in a different way, get virtual, as they say, um, but also stay in touch with our members to work out what it is that we can do for them that will add value. Um, and that's what we've done. And that's what the team's done. And they've done an amazing job. I mean, the Confed team, um, people have worked 24-7. They've, they've not taken holidays. They've, they've worked as hard as our members. And, um, um, I mean, they're taking holidays now because I think they ha- you have to. But, you know, they've worked very, very hard. To, to make sure our members are represented. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's, it's not disputed, is it, by anyone that the NHS and the people who work for it have performed heroically over the past year. And obviously that includes the the, the organisations that, that the Confederation represents. Do, yeah. do you think the events of the last year will be a bit of a, a turning point in terms of how the NHS is sort of uh, is perceived not just by the country but by you know the the, the people who decide decide its future because obviously there's you know it's not it's very yeah. obviously in the last ten years there's been a lot of financial pressure on on NHS trusts and they've mm. been trying to do more mm. more with less mm. and you know there's an argument I suppose mm. that that has the, well, you know the austerity has left them yeah. a bit less able to cope with some aspects of the pandemic is is, is might that change going going forward. I think I think that the, the question look the, the NHS has done a, as I said a remarkable job. We went into the into this pandemic, you know, with about a hundred thousand vacancies. So it wasn't as though we went into the pandemic, you know, fully fully staffed. Um, we'd already um, asked the government for more money for capital um, because our hospitals needed rebuilding, and we needed to maintain the performance on elective care, you know, um, surgery. And so he went into this pandemic, you know, not in the best of shape. And we're coming out of it having achieved a remarkable um, uh, things with with not a lot. And that's because we've pushed um, social health and social care staff to the very limit of their capabilities. So we, I think the public appreciate that and expect politicians to reflect on that. And and we have to we have to learn. We've had 100, over 121,000 people die. We owe it to those people to learn. Um, from those deaths, and it seems to me that going forward, um, policymakers uh, have to work with the NHS to ensure that we have a proper population health system, that we have proper funding, that we can um, uh, fill those vacancies, that we can work differently using technology, and that we can reduce what I called, well, what has been called the inverse care law, that, and the law that states that those people in health and social care the most tend to get it the least, because that costs us all. So. And, and the pandemic has really shown that in very stark, stark relief. So um, I think the NHS has proven its worth. Um, 
it's proven what a, a health system free at the point of of, of contact um, can be and should be in a time of crisis. But there's more we need to do. We have to learn from this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I imagine you'll be you'll be called upon to you know put forward your view on what 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 the lessons we ought to be learning. Uh, I mean, I guess it's you know we're still we're still in the pandemic, aren't we? It's, it's not like it's 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 over. But I. I are there sort of main takeaways that you've, you've you've gleaned that you'll be trying to impress upon the powers that be when they they come to decide decide these things? Well, I mean, to be honest, we're making our views heard whether they ask for them or not, because I think it's our duty to. <laughs> but we wrote to the Prime Minister recently, um, setting out the need for a, a very cautious, um, uh, re, a very cautious uh, approach to getting back to what people might call normal, but I hopefully will be better than normal, um, which I'm glad to say he's taken up the calls that we've made. Um, we've set out uh, what needs to happen in terms of um, uh, getting the show on the road uh, uh, for the NHS, which means resolving some of the funding issues, some of the backlog issues, not expecting um, the, the things to get back to normal instantly. We have a, a backlog of, of elective care of 4.5 million people, and that has differential impacts depending on your where you are in the, in the poverty and equity curve. So we have to pay attention to that. And we've called for more funding for social care because the health and social care system, as we've seen throughout this pandemic, work together. Unless they work together, then everybody's in trouble. So we've called for um, uh, uh, reset on on social care so that we can get people can get the social care that they need in time time of crisis. I'd like to think that the prime minister is listening to us. Certainly, it would, the indications are that he is. We have a white paper coming, uh, legislation coming, which will uh, consolidate some of the things that my members have been working on for some time now, um, like integrated care systems and primary care networks. And it's primary care networks that have delivered the vaccines that we're all taking. So we, we, we've been very clear about what the lessons need to be. And we're very clear about what needs to happen next in order that we can get the, the NHS and social care system back on its feet um, and uh, facing the future with confidence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you, you, you mentioned that the backlogs that will have built up in elective uh, elective care. I mean, that's going to take quite some overcoming, isn't it? Because it, it, it's it's been a, you know a year that uh, people haven't been able to get certain types of treatments or have had to wait a long time for it. I mean, how how big an issue is that for your for the for the organisations that you you represent? Well, I think well, obviously, it's a massive issue for them because nobody wants to. Um, leave people in pain or in challenging circumstances. But I think, uh, to be fair to our members, they've really worked hard um, both before the pandemic and during the pandemic to deliver as much elective uh, provision as they can in partnership with our colleagues in the independent sector. But it's not just the acute care, it's also the mental health challenge. And we reckon that we've got about 10 million additional cases uh, mental health cases, a direct result of the pandemic, and that that has to be dealt with too. So both in terms of acute um, care um, in uh, an, an elective surgery, there's a challenge, but in the mental health challenge, I think is, is, is just as challenging. We have to respond to the massive backlog um, in mental health, both in children and in adults, that, that we're going to have to face, and that's going to require investment, as well as new ways of delivering interventions um across the piece 
Yeah, the, and you, you alluded to it earlier, talking about the uh, the inverse care law that people who, who who require the most care get it the least. And I guess that goes back to uh, that harks back to some interesting comments you made uh, last year at a, a conference organised by the Yorkshire and mm. Humber Academic Health Science Network about the sort of corrosive yeah. effect on of health inequalities on different parts of the country. And you said um, yeah. we've we have maybe two years to get this right before it's hardwired into a generation to come. And we can't afford to waste time. We have to move. We have to move now. And we have to move collectively on the issue of, of health inequality. I mean, do, do, you, do yeah. you get the sense that there's an appetite there sort of locally and nationally to to, to do that? Because, you know, you hear, you hear a lot about leveling up, don't you? But, but I, I guess course, maybe health yeah. inequality is not always sort of paramount when people are talking about you know that kind of those kind of inequalities yes you're probably going to hear a dog barking in the background um uh likes to get in there i think i think the issue is this um the pandemic has really put a red line around the health inequalities we know that people on the front line the people with the least financial resource have really suffered during the pandemic, but they've also stepped up to save to save our lives, actually, and to care for us. So we know that that's a challenge. We also know that minority ethnic groups that often are overrepresented in poor areas doing poorly paid frontline work also have suffered disproportionately during the pandemic. All those are examples of the inequity and inequality that I refer to. You ask me whether there's an appetite. Absolutely. Amongst my members, it's, the, it's, it's in the top five issues of their concern, whether they are a primary care network or an integrated care system or an acute trust, mental health um, or community trust. They are all saying, actually, this is an issue we have to deal with. And the reason why they're saying it is because you can't have, it's not sustainable to have a health and care system that has uh, people with differential life expectancy depending on where they live. And it's not just life expectancy, it's active life expectancy. So, you know, people in, um, in, in Hull, for instance, they have a life expectancy of 78 for men and 80.2 uh, for women compared with 79.6 years, which matters, you know, the two years of life is, you know, and, um, and 83.2 years nationally. And, and that's, that's a problem because you, your active life expectancy is also reduced. So you start getting um, multiple issues, you know, in your 50s instead of in your 70s. And, and then you're in and out of hospital more. And that, you know, so it's not just morally unacceptable and not why the NHS was established. It's also economically and operationally unsustainable. So we, we have to tackle it. it it's it's, it's um, unreasonable and irrational for us to have that kind of differential in life expectancy and active life expectancy um, uh, across in across the, across the country and within and within regions now some of that isn't all down to isn't all down to health um, and as michael marmot uh, a renowned uh, epidemiologist has pointed out a lot of these issues are related to housing um, jobs uh, transport etc but health has a big part to play in in ensuring that um, it actually works to in, to, re, to reverse the inverse care law um, and not to exacerbate it. And I know that my members are really focused on what they can do to move the needle in that area. And I, 
it's it's some I talk about it with them every time we have conversations. So they they are committed, and I think the government is as well. You know, I mean, I don't think that the red wall and all and, and leveling up that's what it means. If it doesn't mean leveling up health, then there's no there is no health. There is no wealth without health. So it's not either or. It's and and. Yeah, absolutely. There's an interesting um, uh, analogy that was made to me about uh, if you take the the East Coast Main Line out of London uh, and all, all the various stops on the on the East Coast Main Line that uh, that well, I think when you, obviously in London you know life expectancy is is relatively good and then in, in the southeast it's relatively good but as you get up into the the Midlands and, and Yorkshire yeah. the, uh, the the life expectancy then declines again uh, I think in in Doncaster I think it goes up a bit in York because yeah York is that bit more affluent, yes. but then it sort of starts uh, starts going down again. So I guess it just gives a an idea about the, yeah. the regional nature of it. But I mean, as you say, it, yeah. it's so multi multifaceted, isn't it? As as an issue, and when I when I think about how you begin to tackle a, a, an issue that's so sort of all consuming, it, it almost makes my head spin thinking about what what, what you try and tackle first. I mean, is is it a case that you have to uh, tackle it from from several different directions and that's how you ultimately I think so I mean the way the way that yes I think our members are very very clear about this I think it can be tackled and it has and it is being tackled and the new population health structures that have been established for a while now integrated care systems are designed to do just that to look to to look across the piece um, at how health can be brought together to ensure that people get Get the get equitable health, i.e., the healthcare that they need where they need it, uh, um, and I think that they're focused on that. But also, the NHS is working in partnership with local government, and local government has impact in other areas like transport, housing, um, and and work. So I think together there is the potential for us to start creating and and scenarios that improve health and social care outcomes for everyone, but particularly for those people at the sharp end. And if you look at it like that, yeah, the, you could argue these these problems are wicked problems, i.e. they've never been solved in one leap throughout the history of the health and social care movement, but there have been rapid steps forward, you know, from the creation of the NHS itself in 1948, uh, right through to the, you know, creation of, of, of NHS trusts and the primary care and primary health care. There's been public health. So all these things can... Can have, have been steps forward, and the next big step forward, I think, is you know public health um, by design, uh, population health by design, and and how we work with our partners in local government to deliver that single uh, point, single points of contact, and healthcare for all. That's the point. So every policy um, being measured by its ability to improve people's health, as opposed to being neutral or indeed backwards in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Explain the concept of uh, population health, because I think uh, you mentioned that a couple of times and people may not quite understand what that means. It means something quite specific, doesn't it, in terms yeah. of uh, sort of a health yeah. healthcare concept? Yeah, well, it, it, means, it means what it says on the tin, really. It means taking, it means looking across, looking at looking at a population rather than individuals in that population and designing a healthcare um, intervention that actually moves everyone up rather than just some people up. Um, that's basically what it what it's about. Put simply, it's about ensuring that that your your area where you live, you know, in the case, case of Yorkshire and Umberside or um, Sheffield, or has a health. Uh, an ICS system, um, uh, West Yorkshire being a, a good example, that actually looks across the piece and looks at looks at how they can work together 
um, uh, not just hospitals, but hospitals working with primary care, primary care working with community services and uh, local government working with all of them to present, um, to move the, the health of the population up. Because we know if we can do that, everybody benefits. That That's basically what it, what it means. Yeah, and so and so it is happening already to some extent. But you'd like to see that agenda. It go, is happening go, go already. Further. Absolutely, we, it is happening. It start well. It's starting to happen. It's early days. We're building the infrastructure. We're building the partnerships. We're building the relationships. Some of which have been happening over some time now. But you know, I always I, I think we we have a we have a duty to be optimistic. Those of us that are lucky enough to live in good health to have jobs and places to live and relationships that are positive and all that good stuff. I think we owe it to be optimistic on behalf of those people who don't. So I am optimistic that we that we are in the right place at the moment, um, coming out of a, a horrendous pandemic. We have the opportunity to, to learn, take that learning into the future and start reversing the inverse care law, uh, you know, pushing forward for those people who need it the most. Fantastic. Well, um, Victor, that's a good positive note uh, on, on which to end. And I really hope, uh, I think everyone hopes that that's a, an aim that can be achieved. And I guess there's going to be all kinds of inquiries out there and, you know, looking looking back at what the, the pandemic has taught us. And I think if, if that aim could come out of everything that we've experienced in the last year, it would be, uh, uh, you know, it, it would be a real, a real silver lining. So um, thank you for speaking Agreed. to us, Victor. Uh, and um, and, and, and all much. the best, and no worries at all. And um, we'll we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. I've been Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post's political editor, and you can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google or iTunes. And we would love it if you could leave us a review, share our links on Twitter or tell your friends. So Jevy will be back next week and we'll see you next time. Bye bye. This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus, streamed via internet, offer ends 2nd of May. Standard pricing after three months.